0: I'm going to be taking a break in the Exploring Caridian series in this episode and deal with the topic that I have not covered on the podcast, but that I had written a blog post about years ago. I was reminded of that blog post recently when someone reposted it in my Traditional Stoicism Facebook group. That blog post was on the topic of universal reason, and I realized that I have not covered it, so here we go. In his wonderful book, The Inner Citadel, Pierre Haydeau wrote, What Defined a Stoic? Above all else, was the choice of a life in which every thought, every desire, and every action would be guided by no other law than that of universal reason. The ancient Stoics placed a rational, divine, and providentially ordered cosmos at the center of their philosophical system and relied on it to guide their every thought, desire, and action. For the Stoic, nature is the measure of all things. Therefore, the Stoics argued to experience well being. We must live in agreement with nature stoicism was not designed to help us acquire the things we desire like wealth good health a good reputation etc instead it provides a systematic philosophical way of life that teaches us how to get what we need virtue so that we can experience true well-being happiness the goal of stoicism is not to escape from emotional angst to a state of tranquility instead the only goal of stoic training is the development of moral excellence, virtue. By developing virtue, we do experience tranquility and peace of mind, but that is coincident with the development of virtue, which is the goal. The Stoa was quite different from the Epicurean Garden. Stoicism does not prescribe a retreat from the tumult of life to escape the psychological angst created by desires and aversions. Instead, Stoicism offers invasive surgery on the soul. In episode 26 of Stoicism on Fire, I likened Stoicism to a farmer's plow that digs deep and turns the soil of our troubled psyches upside down to expose misguided thoughts and misdirected desires and aversions. Anyone who has embarked on the Stoic path knows this is not an easy task. It requires a complete paradigm shift. The practitioner must come to see their current life, which is absorbed in self-centered thought, desires, and fears for what it is, unnatural. Hedo suggests that this requires, quote, a complete reversal of our usual way of looking at things, and argues, quote, we are to switch our human vision of reality, in which our values depend on our passions, to a natural vision of things, which replaces each event within the perspective of universal nature, end quote. This transformation redirects our attention from things that are not up to us, like health, wealth, reputation, to the only thing we have complete control over, our faculty of choice. This change of vision begins when we step beyond theory and engage in what Hedo calls the spiritual exercises of ancient philosophy. Hedo recognized that modern prejudices might cause some to object to the term spiritual in philosophy. However, as he points out, no other term covers the breadth of these ancient practices, which extend beyond mere intellectual exercises to encompass, quote, the individual's entire psychism, end quote. He wrote, these exercises, involving not just the intellect or reason, but all of a human being's faculties, including emotion and imagination, had the same goal as all ancient philosophy, reducing human suffering and increasing happiness, by teaching people to detach themselves from their particular egocentric, individualistic viewpoints and become aware of their belonging as integral component parts to the whole constituted by the entire cosmos." End quote. Stoic practice not only involves the entire psychism of the individual, but it also requires the interdependence of all three parts of the holistic Stoic system logic, physics, and ethics, which coincides with universal reason. As Hado notes quote, For the Stoics, the same reason was at work in nature and physics, in the human community and ethics, and in individual thought and logic. The single act of the philosopher in training for wisdom thus came to coincide with the unique act of universal reason, which is present within all things, and in tune with itself. Quote. These exercises include the attitude of attention, prosiche, and the three Stoic disciplines, ascent, desire, and action. Now, I cover these exercises in the Path of the Prokopton series of blog posts and in episodes 5 through 14 of the Stoicism on Fire podcast. According to Heidegger, through the practice of these spiritual exercises, quote, the individual raises himself up to a life of the objective spirit. That is to say, he replaces himself with the perspective of the whole. Quote. This cosmic viewpoint, often referred to as a view from above, provides the practitioner with an entirely new outlook on the events in their life. As Heidegger notes, quote, the philosopher must abandon his partial egoistic vision of reality in order, by way of physics, to rise to the point of seeing things as universal reason sees them. Above all, the philosopher must intensely wish the common good of the universe and of society by discovering that a part can possess no other proper good than the common good of the all." Quote. Within the context of their whole life and the interrelatedness of things and a purposeful cosmos, events once considered harmful or even tragic take on new meaning. From this vantage point, we begin to understand the Stoic principle that it is not events that trouble us, but our thoughts about those events, in Chiridion 16. We bring about this change of perspective or transformation of vision through the practice known as the discipline of desire. Haydo writes, quote, the discipline of desire essentially consists in replacing oneself within the context of the cosmic all and in becoming aware of human existence as being a part one that must conform to the will of the whole, which in this case is equivalent to universal reason. End quote. Later, while expounding on the discipline of desire, Hedo highlights the fact that this trains us to consent to destiny. Quote, As we have seen, the exercises of definition of the self and concentration on the present, together with our consent to the will of nature, as it is manifested in each event, raise our consciousness to a cosmic level. By consenting to the present event which is happening to me, in which the whole world is implied, I want that which universal reason wants, and identify myself with it in my feeling of participation and of belonging to a whole which transcends the limits of individuality. Hedo describes the effect of this cosmic viewpoint as follows. Our perspective is changed once again when the self, as a principle of freedom, recognizes that there is nothing greater than the moral good, and therefore accepts what has been willed by destiny, that is to say, universal reason. End quote. In the opening quote by Pierre Hadot, he asserts that universal reason guides each of the Stoic practices. To proceed, we need to understand what Hadot means by universal reason, and how it can guide our Stoic practice. In the Inner Citadel, Hedo defines universal reason in a variety of places. He defines it as that which gives form and energy to matter that is docile. The source of reason which is common to all mankind and asserts its relatedness. The will of nature that we are to follow. A tendency toward self-coherence. Quote, God is nothing other than universal reason, end quote. Universal reason is the whole of which our human reason is a part the will that necessarily links all events together, the transcendent norm which posits the absolute value of morality, the logos, reason, which extends throughout all things, something the Epicureans denied the existence of, the direct or indirect cause of all things and events, that which wills our destiny, and finally, the ultimate guide for a Stoic life. In other words, universal reason is the rational order inherent in the cosmos, which we can understand because our human reason is a fragment of that universal reason. In other words, it's the Stoic Logos. The Stoics asserted there is objective truth, laws of nature, and an objective standard of morality, and we are subject to those laws of nature and its moral standard. As Haido notes, Quote, the Stoic sage knows the same happiness as universal reason, which is allegorically personified by Zeus, for gods and human beings share the same reason, which is perfect in the gods, but perfectible in humans. The sage has attained the perfection of reason by making his reason coincide with divine reason and merging his will with divine will. Quote. While only the Stoic sage can have perfect knowledge of divine reason, Those making progress on the Stoic path, the Procoptons, can still use our imperfect understanding of universal reason as a guide to life. The Stoics accepted that objective reality, and therefore objective truth, exists in nature. Likewise, they argued that our happiness can only be found in an attempt, however imperfect, to understand and live in agreement with the will of nature, which is universal reason. The Stoics accepted that universal reason, Logos, is the first cause of the cosmos, and our human minds are fragments of that same reason. Thus, we are capable of understanding nature, which is guided by universal reason. These unprovable axioms were arrived at by philosophical reasoning rather than the scientific method. Now, some people might immediately dismiss axioms like these as, quote, unprovable. They will say, show me the evidence, or I want to see the facts, something like that they fail to realize that science rests on unprovable axioms as well. Science necessarily assumes, but cannot empirically prove, that an external reality exists. In other words, we cannot prove we are not experiencing a collective dream or a trick by a Cartesian demon. Likewise, science assumes reality is understandable and predictable, even though, as David Hume pointed out, predictability is an assumption and it is not a provable fact of nature. Without these assumptions, we are forever stuck in solipsism or lost in a vacuous relativism or skepticism. Our confidence in these fundamental axioms of science enables us to explore the cosmos, accumulate volumes of knowledge, and improve human life in many ways. Nevertheless, the scientific method is limited to the how questions about reality by its very nature. It is limited to observing the behavior of nature, science is incapable of answering the big why questions like why is there something rather than nothing is there any meaning or purpose to all of this is the cosmos a fortunate accident or is there some form of teleology at play is our human rationality derived from a higher source a universal reason or the product of chance are we free to choose our responses to our environment and therefore morally accountable or are we subject to a deterministic universe These are philosophical or metaphysical questions that lie outside the scope of science. Scientists who claim to have answers to these questions are not practicing science. Instead, they are engaging in scientism. Scientism is a worldview. It is not science. Now, that's a topic for a future episode, or two or three, to be quite frank. The Stoics struggled with those same philosophical questions in ancient times. One example of a why question is exhibited in the debate between the Stoics and the Epicureans over the nature of the cosmos. Stoicism's providence or atoms disjunction highlights an inquiry into the existential choice between two distinct worldviews. Marcus's repeated handling of that disjunction in his meditations demonstrates three undeniable truths. First, providence did matter to Marcus and to the Stoics. If it didn't matter, Marcus would not have repeated it as often as he did. Second, Marcus's repeated handling of this disjunction demonstrates a humility toward what is knowable with absolute certainty. In a few passages, Marcus even appears to express uncertainty about which worldview is objectively true. After all, neither worldview, providence or atoms, can be proven via empirical means. The textual evidence suggests the Stoics considered the possibility they could be wrong, and the Epicurean worldview could be correct. Nevertheless, despite any uncertainty, the Stoics thought the ordered nature of the observable cosmos pointed to an underlying rationality rather than chance. They also decided a providentially ordered cosmos best supported their ethical claims. Therefore, the Stoics made the existential choice to commit themselves to a providentially ordered cosmos as a fundamental axiom of their philosophical system. In his conclusion of The Inner Citadel, Hedo draws these considerations together in a thought-provoking passage. Hedo refutes Ernest Renan, a 19th-century French Orientalist and Semitic scholar who claimed Marcus was indifferent about the Providence or Adams disjunction. Hedo addresses this earlier in his book when he wrote, Whatever modern historians may claim, the dilemma, either Providence or Adams, when used by Seneca or by Marcus Aurelius, does not signify either the renunciation of Stoic physical theory or an eclectic attitude which refuses to decide between Epicureanism and Stoicism. In fact, we can see that Marcus has already made his choice between Epicureanism and Stoicism by the way he describes the Epicurean model with a variety of pejorative terms. Confused mix or formless mass, for example. End quote. Renan argued that the perennial attraction of Marcus's meditations lies in his discovery that, quote, "the moral conscious is independent of all theories about the world and of all definite dogmas end quote." Hayeau responded with this quote: "In fact, as I have noted, the meaning of this dilemma is entirely different. In the first place, Marcus did not invent it. It was traditional within the Stoic school. Moreover, The Stoics had elaborated this reasoning in order to establish irrefutability, that if Epicureanism were true, a hypothesis which they excluded absolutely, one would still have to live as a Stoic. In other words, one would still have to act in accordance with reason and consider moral good to be the only good, even if, all around us, everything were nothing but chaos and chance. Such a position does not imply skepticism, quite the contrary. Yet the fact the Stoics constructed such an argument is extremely interesting. By imagining that their physical theories might be false, and yet people would still have to live as a Stoic, they revealed that which in their eyes was absolutely essential to their system. What defined a Stoic above all else was the choice of a life in which every thought, every desire, and every action would be guided by no other law than that of universal reason. Whether the world is ordered or chaotic, It depends only on us to be rationally coherent with ourselves. In fact, all the dogmas of Stoicism derive from this existential choice. It is impossible that the universe could produce human rationality unless the latter were already in some way present in the former. The essence of Stoicism is thus the experience of the absolute nature of moral conscience and of the purity of intention moral conscience, moreover, is only moral if it is pure, that is to say, if it is based upon the universality of reason, which takes itself as an end, not in the particular interest of an individual or a state, end quote. Let's dissect this passage. Hédo argues that the Stoics used the Providence or Adams disjunction to, quote, establish irrefutably that even if Epicureanism were true, a hypothesis which they excluded absolutely, one would still have to live as a Stoic. In other words, even if the Epicureans are correct and the universe is a result of serendipitous chance, one must still, quote, act in accordance with reason and consider moral good to be the only good, end quote. As Haydo pointed out here and elsewhere, such a position does not imply skepticism. He continues, Quote, "By imagining that their physical theories might be false and that people would still have to live as Stoics, they revealed that which in their eyes was absolutely essential to their system End quote." Hado then provides one of the most concise and insightful assessments of the Providence or Adam's theme I have found. He wrote: "In fact, all, the dogmas of Stoicism derive from this existential choice. He is referring to the existential choice between the rational, providentially ordered cosmos of the Stoics or the chance universe of the Epicureans. But what did the Stoics use to support their choice for ascent to a providential cosmos? Here is where Hedo highlights the Stoic argument against the materialist worldview of the Epicureans and many modern Stoics. Hedo argues the Stoics thought, "...it is impossible the universe could produce human rationality unless the latter were already in some way present in the former." Haido is arguing that all of the Stoic dogmas, their doctrines, are derived from this existential choice. And what is that choice? The choice to assent to a cosmos permeated by rationality, from which humans derive their rationality. Why? Because, as Haido argues, the Stoics considered it unimaginable, not improbable, but impossible, that our human rationality could come from anything but a pre-existing rationality. Universal Reason In other words, our human rationality cannot be the product of chance. The rationality we humans possess existed in some form before the arrival of humans. It is because our human reason is a fragment of universal reason that we can understand nature and live in agreement with her. Ironically, when we fast forward 2300 years, we find ourselves faced with the same existential choice. Moreover, the same divide exists today among modern philosophers and scientists as they attempt to explain or explain away human consciousness and the apparent order in the cosmos. Reductionist materialists argue that human consciousness is simply a byproduct of brain activity. Thus it is an epiphenomenon, a side effect, or an illusion created by neural processes. Fortunately, an ever-increasing number of thinkers are challenging this materialist model by arguing that consciousness must be a fundamental aspect of reality itself, Some of these thinkers are making arguments that sound remarkably similar to those of the ancient Stoics. So what does all this mean for a 21st century practitioner of Stoicism? It means we are faced with the same existential choice today that divided the Stoics and the Epicureans in ancient times. Either providence or atoms. Either there is an inherent intelligence within the cosmos that pre-exists human rationality, or the universe and our human consciousness result from fortuitous chance. Neither option is provable, despite the assertion by many that reductive materialism is confirmed by science. If that were the case, we would not be witnessing the modern revolution in science and philosophy, which is challenging the assumptions. Yes, I said assumptions, and not facts, of materialism. Does any of this prove that cosmos is providentially ordered by universal reason? Of course not. Neither the scientific method nor philosophical inquiry can prove such an assertion. However. Contrary to what many misinformed atheists like to claim, science does not prove the opposite. Science cannot prove the existence of our universe and human consciousness are products of chance combinations of matter occurring over an extremely long period of time. The best scientific facts can only take us back to the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. Beyond that, we must rely on philosophical reasoning to find reasonable metaphysical theories about the origins of the cosmos. The existential choice of a worldview requires a small leap beyond the facts. However, neither leap, in either direction, is a leap of blind faith since both paths follow the facts as far as they can take us and then rely on philosophical reasoning to arrive at a metaphysical position. The choice is not between science and religion, as some would like to assert. That is a false dichotomy. Many intelligent people past and present, assent to the existence of a mind-like intelligence within the fabric of the cosmos and refer to it as God, without subscribing to any formal religious belief or practice. There is an open space between traditional religion and atheism, held by many intelligent thinkers past and present. Einstein made it clear he was neither an atheist nor a believer in any formal religion. Like the Stoics, Einstein did not believe in a personal God. Nevertheless, he asserted that individuals could rise to a, quote, third stage of religious experience, end quote, which he called cosmic religion, where, quote, the individual feels the futility of human desires and aims and the sublimity and marvelous order which reveal themselves both in nature and in the world of thought. Individual existence impresses him as a sort of prison, and he wants to experience the universe as a single significant whole, end quote. We could insert that quote by Einstein into the Discourses of Epictetus, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, or the Letters of Seneca without raising any question about its compatibility with Stoicism. Likewise, we could do the same with the following assertion from Einstein. Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. End quote. Einstein famously wrote that he believed in quote, Spinoza's god who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists. End quote. Interestingly, Spinoza's god is acknowledged as the pantheistic god of stoicism. Another brilliant thinker, William James, once described religion in its broadest sense as quote, the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves thereto. This belief and this adjustment are the religious attitude in the soul end quote. Again, that could have been written by any of the ancient Stoics. Now we can return to the fundamental existential choice of the Stoic as expressed by Pierre Hadeau. Quote, what defined a Stoic above all else was the choice of a life in which every thought, every desire, and every action would be guided by no other law than that of universal reason. End quote. We humans do not like ambiguity and uncertainty. Therefore, we tend to gravitate toward extremes that provide us with a false sense of certainty. We see this in the modern science versus religion debate, dominated by fundamentalists on both sides. Unfortunately, Reasonable people who attempt to hold on to a rational yet spiritual position in the no man's land between those entrenched extremes tend to take fire from both sides. Neither atheists nor traditional monotheistic believers find the Stoic conception of divinity entirely to their liking. The piety of the Stoics was not based on superstition, myth, or revelation. Nevertheless, the Stoics built their theory and practice around an existential commitment to a cosmos providentially ordered by universal reason. Many moderns get hung up on the idea that they have to, quote, believe in a divine and providentially ordered cosmos. It's not about belief. It is a choice, an existential choice, an existential commitment. Everyone makes a commitment, consciously or subconsciously, to a worldview. Even the true skeptic assents to an unknowable cosmos. Those who recoil at, quote, belief in providence, overlook the fact that they believe the universe and human consciousness results from a series of astronomically improbable accidents that cannot be proven by empirical means. Like it or not, a leap beyond the best available facts is necessary, either providence or atoms. That existential commitment was essential to the Stoics. It provided Marcus the psychological confidence and consolation to assert, quote, Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your own good time. Meditations 423. Seneca pointed out the difference between these worldviews in a practical yet poignant manner. Quote, No matter which is true, Lucilius, or even if they are all true, we must still practice philosophy. Perhaps the inexorable law of fate constrains us. Perhaps God, the universal arbiter, governs all events. Perhaps it is chance that drives human affairs and disrupts them. All the same, it is philosophy that must preserve us. Letters, 16.5. Philosophy provides the only source of help for the existential question. However, the choice between these worldviews makes a difference in one's stance toward reality and their resulting psychology. Seneca points out the difference in unambiguous terms. Philosophy will urge us to give willing obedience to God, but a grudging obedience to fortune. It will teach us to follow God, to cope with chance. Letters, 16.5. Seneca is pointing out the difference between willing obedience to a providentially ordered cosmos or grudging obedience to the circumstances of fortune. In other words, like the tethered dog in the famous stoic analogy, we must follow the card of fate. Our choice is to do so willingly or grudgingly. We all make that existential choice. We all rely on a worldview, consciously or unconsciously, to navigate life. Most people get dragged through life, kicking and screaming, some grow tired of being dragged and look for an alternative, like Stoicism. The Stoics considered the evidence and inferred that universal reason, divine rationality, is inherent in the cosmos and is the source of our human reason. Quite sensibly, they concluded the wise person must bring their life into harmony with that universal reason, nature, to experience well-being, eudaimonia. Modern people as a whole possess more knowledge and material wealth suffer less hunger and deprivation, and live longer with less physical hardship and pain than our ancestors from any other time in recorded history. Nevertheless, as a whole, we are unhappy and suffer from profound existential angst. Why? Because we have disconnected ourselves from our source, nature, universal reason. Meanwhile, the modern person insists that he is the measure of all things. He is the only source of rationality in the cosmos. And happiness can only be found in more knowledge, more possessions, and ever-increasing dominion over nature. The Stoics thought otherwise. They provided humankind with the prescription for a better life, a life where every thought, every desire, and every action is guided by no other law than that of universal reason. A life where we could say to the cosmos, as Marcus did, everything suits me, This suits your designs, oh my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me. It is in your own good time. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.